Dear Father, I thank you, Father, that two or more are gathered. And many more than just two because your spirit is here, Father. And by your uh, your spirit, we know that the things we'll learn will go out and uh, be useful to you as you employ us for your service. So that things don't stop here today, Father. They begin for a group of people who may then take them elsewhere. Thank you, Lord, that you would train us, counting us uh, useful to you in the work that you have to do. Not worthy, not uh, powerful, Father, but useful. And useful because you make us so. And you make us so, Father, through your word. And, Lord, tonight we return to the Gospel of John. We expect to hear things, Father, that are going to change us and mold us into the image of Christ. We... We expect to hear things that uh, teach us about these men and what they did in their day and Jesus particularly in his work. Uh, Father, I pray that we would have that eager expectation, that, that curious sense tonight of uh, what you have in store for us. And that we would not let that um, pass by as the thoughts of our day and our life intrude and concerns about uh, what lays at home, lies at home for us when we get there. All of those distractions, Father, please take them away and let us just focus on you. For the next hour, Lord, we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, John is now recording Jesus's unavoidable march toward the cross. That's where we stand a good 10, 11 chapters before the end of this gospel. Uh, yet there is a tremendous record in front of us, one that John takes great care to represent for us. Many, many details here of his final week before he dies and in the days following his resurrection, details that none of the other gospel writers included in their gospels. Over the next 10 chapters, John is going to capture a series of extended discourses between Jesus and the disciples. These are some of the most famous in the gospel. In particular, there's the one at the Last Supper, which takes all of five chapters by itself. Also, there's the high priestly prayer that Jesus is going to pray to his father. This is only recorded in John. And then there's other details John gives us about the trials of Jesus and the crucifixion. Again, things that the other writers overlooked. Then finally, there's a whole bunch of detail at the end of this gospel about what happens after he's resurrected and walking with the disciples for a time further. Again, things that no one else chose to capture. All of that awaits us in the second half of the study. But today we're going to return to the beginning of this week as Jesus is entered into Jerusalem on the Sunday before Passover. Now, over the past three months since he was last in Jerusalem, you remember the pressure has been building because he raised Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees are seeking to find Jesus and kill him. The crowds are wondering if he's going to make an appearance during Passover. Now that he has entered the city, conflict is inevitable. And it's because of all this building pressure that Jesus himself has his mind on his impending death. So we pick up again today as John relates a brief, interesting encounter that happens After Jesus' triumphant entry into the city, it begins in verse 20. That's where we pick up. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethesda of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. 
interesting moment, and it leads to this interesting response. So it begins with Jesus as his death approaches, coming into the city, and then we hear of a group of Gentiles, John calls them Greeks, that's just another way of saying Gentiles, who come into the city because they are going to participate in the Feast of Passover. Now, the mere fact that they are interested in the Feast of Passover tells us that they are proselytes, much like the eunuch that we hear about in Acts chapter 8, who had been worshiping at the feast, and after leaving, he's caught up by Philip, and Philip introduces him to Jesus through the book of Isaiah. You may know that story. This is a similar situation in which you have God-fearing Greeks, or we would say believers. They are coming into the city for the feast, and it says they're interested in trying to find Jesus. And they ask Philip where he can be found, perhaps because Philip comes from Bethesda of the Galilee. Maybe that region is a region in which some of these men may have lived. We're not sure the connection, but in any event... They come and ask if Jesus is around and could they be introduced to him. This is such a curious and really an out-of-place event in the narrative. It doesn't seem connected to anything on either side. You might wonder why it's even been included. No other writer thought to include it. It's perhaps because it reminds us of another group of Gentiles that came from afar, seeking to worship the Lord in Israel. That visit happened at the very beginning of his earthly life. They also had to ask where could he be found. Those magi were a testimony to the power of the Messiah to reach the world, even to the Gentile world outside Israel. And so now at the very end of his life, these are bookends, if you will, at the very end of Jesus' life, he has yet another visit of Gentiles who have heard of him and know he's there and want to meet him. And in that sense, I think their arrival communicates that Jesus' purpose for being on earth has come full circle, has been met. Gentiles are now streaming to Jerusalem to find and worship the Messiah. And we're told, in fact, in Zechariah and elsewhere that the Gentile nations will stream to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah. And the fulfillment of that prophecy awaits for the kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. But even now it's being fulfilled in a prefigured way by the arrival of these Greeks, we're told. So it would seem, based on the way the narrative plays out, that when the disciples brought the news to Jesus that, hey, we got a bunch of Gentiles out here that want to see you, that becomes a catalyst for Jesus to announce the hour of his death has come. You notice that? That's the way John says he, quote, answered this visit or this request for a visit. He does not address the Greek visitors directly, but it would seem as though their arrival to Jerusalem demonstrated to Jesus that he no longer belonged to Israel alone. He was now prepared to die for the sins of the whole world, just as John says in his letter. And so in verse 23, Jesus then declares in this moment, in this occasion, that the Son of Man is now to be glorified in death and in resurrection. As I think about him speaking these words, knowing he's only a few days from his own death, I wonder how much Jesus must have feared about what he was speaking concerning himself. He knew what was going to happen. And he knew it had to happen. He's been moving to this point since the very beginning of his ministry, yea, even his very life. Nevertheless, he hasn't waned in his obedience to this mission. He's been sorely tested all the way through, and he's about to be tested all the more in his humanity for whether he can continue to walk this path to where he knows he's got to go. To help explain the beneficial purpose of his death to these people, to the disciples, Jesus then uses a parable to explain not only that he's dying, but why he has to die. He uses the example of a seed. 
He makes the obvious beginning point. Seeds exist for a purpose, and their purpose is to bring new life. But before they can do that, before they can serve their intended purpose, they have to be buried, which is a picture of death. And Paul, you may know, uses this same analogy in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's teaching on bodily resurrection. He says, just as a seed has to be buried before life can come, so must the body die before a new body comes. That's Paul's analogy. Jesus is saying something similar. He's saying he's prepared to die, to be buried in his death, because in doing so, he expects to bear much fruit. But if he doesn't die, he can't reach that outcome, just as a seed wouldn't be able to either. So he says, in my death, I will bear much fruit. That's got to be the greatest understatement in all history. In my death, I'm going to bear much fruit. He also says that this one seed, being by itself, would be useless. But when you do bury a seed, you bury it by itself, usually. Generally, farmers put one seed in the ground at a time. And I wonder if Jesus is explaining that he expects to be alone in his death. There are all these adoring crowds now, and he's got the disciples hanging on his every word. All of that's about to disappear as he comes close to death. Why is he going to be alone? Because sinful flesh always places greater importance on earthly goals than on spiritual goals. And Jesus is about to reverse that. He's about to sacrifice himself so others may live. And he's lecturing these men that they should be thinking and doing the same because sooner or later it's going to come back to them. And in the meantime, they're going to turn their backs on him. He knows that, right? So he starts talking about seeds being alone. Paradoxically, Jesus says, death is the way to life, telling them that they must not try to cherish an earthly life at the expense of a spiritual one. And I think he means it in three ways. First, he means if someone loves earthly life, then that person will miss the opportunity to gain eternal life. In a sense, he's defining the repentance that leads to salvation. Repentance in the biblical sense is humbling yourself to recognize that the life you know on earth is not true life. You've come to agree that you are a sinner destined to eternal death. That if you go on willingly in your old self, you go to the grave and never into the presence of God. Therefore, you must repent of that. You must turn away from that life lived apart from God and embrace a new life in Christ. As Paul said, we are buried with Christ so that we can be raised with him. So the first way in which he means by death you will have life, it is that we must be willing to die with Christ to be new in life through him. Secondly, he says that we must be willing to die to self so that you can follow Christ. We no longer seek for the lifestyle the world offers. If we seek after that life, then we won't be seeking for the life that comes by abiding in Christ. And we won't be pleasing him. And therefore, we will not be storing up things in the eternal realm. We're supposed to not depend on this world to find our satisfaction. We're not supposed to measure the rewards by what we gain for ourselves here and now in a place that's destined to burn up. We're all supposed to adopt the attitude that everything in this world is worth forfeiting for the sake of what Jesus offers in eternity. So in that sense, you have to be willing to lose your life, your earthly reward, your earthly enjoyment to a degree so that you can be focused on what you can gain through obedience to Christ in eternity. So there's die with Christ. There's die to Christ. And then finally, the church must be prepared to follow in Jesus's footsteps by going to the grave, if required, to support the mission of the church. That is to die like Christ, to die like he did. It's often said that the blood of Christian martyrs has watered the seeds of the church. The death of Christians in the face of persecution is commonly a source of salvation for a new generation. And whenever Christians demonstrate that their love for Christ is greater than their love for their physical life, 
God can use that testimony to bring more souls into the kingdom. Therefore, our death can become a source of life for someone else, for eternal life in someone who sees our witness. He summarizes this final point of dying like him in verse 26, when he says, whoever turns to Jesus should expect to follow in his footsteps. Jesus leads his people. And so wherever we're drawn to serve, we should know that he's coming with us. He's bringing us there, in fact. These words look forward, I think, to the time when Jesus has gone off the earth and he's telling his disciples, even though you won't have me here soon, you'll still be working with me and I with you. He'll be leading them as they go through in their days in ministry. This is also true for us today, of course, by the spirit. We're led in the moments where he intends to perform ministry through us. Even in the case where you think you planned it all from A to Z and you're doing it according to your plan, that plan itself was an inspiration of God. If it's got God at work in you, the father, Christ says he honors the one who serves Christ. The honor may be evident on earth to some extent. You may get some encouragement. You may get some praise. You may get some results or fruit. In other words, but regardless, it's going to be remembered in heaven. That's ultimately where the father will honor us. So you can see Jesus's death on his mind. He's thinking of his own. He's thinking of how it will impact the disciple. He's trying to help them understand what it means and how they need to follow in his footsteps. And then he begins to explain the purpose ultimately in his coming death. But his explanation is going to go completely over the heads of the crowd and the disciples. He's just planting seeds, not to mix my metaphors, but he's planting seeds with them here. Verse 27, he says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying, that it had thundered, and others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, the voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. The Bible starts off verse 27 saying, Jesus was troubled in his soul. The Greek word for soul has a wide variety of meanings in, in the Bible. It can mean soul, but it can mean life, it can mean heart, it can even mean mind. So, in a general sense, it means the whole of a person. The whole of a person. And I think that's how Jesus meant it here. His spirit was absolutely committed to the mission, 100%. His spirit had no doubts about it. His spirit knew he had come for this very reason. He had the spirit of God. He was the spirit of God. There was no turning back, but it was his humanity. It was the nature of him that was man, his person, his soul, as he calls it, or as we see it translated. That's what was troubled by what lay ahead. And the Greek word translated troubled could equally be translated frightened. Our Lord was frightened by the pain of the beatings, by the terror of the scourge, by the unimaginable suffering on the cross. He was just as scared of those things, knowing they lay ahead of him, as you and I would have been. But because he was God, yet also a man, his power as God only served to magnify his suffering in this case. Because, first of all, as God, he knew what lay ahead in the future this hour that is coming. He knew it in detail before it ever took place. How much worse is it to know what's coming when you're going to go through something like this? Better not to know it all before it happens, right? So he's bearing it in advance, first of all. Secondly, as God, he knew he had the power to stop it at any time he wanted to. Notice Jesus even asked rhetorically in verse 27, he says, what should I say to the Father? Should I call the Father and ask him to save me from this hour? He knew he could do that. He knew he had the option. In fact, he's rhetorically saying, will I let this temptation sway me? And he says, how could I? I came here for this very reason. 
And yet you have to consider for a moment how much harder was it for him to contemplate the horrible death that he knew was coming, knowing he had all the power in the world to stop it if he chose to. What compels Jesus to go forward under those circumstances? And the Bible gives us a simple answer. Love. It was his love for the Father that compelled him to obey despite what he knew lay ahead of him. And that's why he says, I came here for this very purpose. Remember, Jesus, in the beginning with the Father, knew the plan, in fact, authored it. And therefore, if he had not been willing to go through with it, he never would have started it. What he could not have anticipated, we presume, is what it feels like as man to experience what he's now experiencing. Consider the contrast here between the second Adam, Jesus, as the Bible calls him, and the first Adam. The first Adam was compelled to obey the Father, just as the second Adam is compelled to obey the Father. But in the case of the first, he lived under ideal circumstances. Nothing in Adam's existence made obeying God's word concerning the fruit difficult. He had everything he wanted. He had all that he needed. There was no pressure to go do it. And nonetheless, he disobeyed without hardly a thought, according to what we read in chapter 3. Now consider Christ. Christ is the second Adam. He comes to reverse the mistake of the first, obviously. But Jesus' circumstances are a product of the first Adam's sin. Jesus enters a world of sin, not a world of paradise. Jesus enters in a world that has an enemy that needs to be defeated, whereas in the case of God's original creation, no such enemy existed, not until Satan's fall. And in the case of Adam... In the garden, there's no evidence that Satan had any influence on him. It came directly through his wife, and he had every opportunity to dispute what his wife was asking, and he made no attempt to, as far as we can tell. So once again, he didn't even suffer under the abuse of the enemy, not directly. And then there's the whole purpose in Jesus' coming. He came to die in suffering, not to live in the perfection of Eden. And yet, despite the fact that Jesus had everything against him, versus the first Adam who had everything for him, Jesus is not going to disobey But notice he says, I'm troubled in my soul. He feels the weight of what you and I would expect to feel. But he says, I'm not going to tell the Father to save me. And instead, in a moment that is actually a petition, a prayer, he says, Father, glorify your name. In fact, some commentators believe this whole conversation in verses 27 and 28 is prayer. And then, of course, you see the Father answering with words that apparently all can hear, saying, I have glorified my name and I will glorify my name. Now, this is the third time in all of the Gospels that the Father has answered Jesus from heaven. The first one happened at his baptism with John. The second one happened at his transfiguration when the apostles, three of the apostles were present. Now it happens as Jesus rejects any temptation to avoid the cross. And this third one only John records. It's interesting, though, that in all three cases, especially in this case, the supernatural dramatic revelation of God's voice from heaven is veiled to the audience that hears it. Its meaning is not caught, at least not in the moment. And you have to wonder, because these moments are obviously intended to show the Father's endorsement of His Son and of the Son's obedience. There's a purpose in these revelations that God is going out of His way to grant. And yet the audiences in each case are always a bit unsure about what they've heard or seen. Some aren't even sure they've heard anything audible. Some just think it's thunder. Others miss it altogether. In this case, notice verse 29, the crowd's debating if they even heard it at all. And then some say, well, it was angels. And then they all assume it's for Jesus' benefit. Now, why would God produce such a display and yet veil it from the witnesses? 
Even Jesus says to them, look, it wasn't for me, it was for you. And we know Jesus didn't need an answer to his prayer. The people needed to know that the Son was doing the Father's will. That was the whole point. Why the Father does this? Well, I think the Father veils these moments because the Father glorifies himself through the Son and not in any other way. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that the Son is the appointed representation of the Father and only by the Son do you know the Father. Hebrews 1.1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. If the father were willing to go around his appointed representative, how important is his appointed representative? The Bible says he is all important. And that no one comes to the Father but through Christ. So it would stand to reason that through the Son, through the Word, we come to understand what was happening. And I think when the Father says here, I have and I will glorify my name, it's to this very purpose that he's alluding. He is saying that Jesus has been glorifying the Father already in everything he's doing. And Jesus is going to glorify the Father again in what he's about to do. That reference to I have and I will is speaking with respect to what Jesus is doing. So, at least the supernatural display of the Father here is just another seed being planted that the disciples will later remember when the time is right, and they'll include it in Scripture so that we can understand it as well. As we see the discourses growing in John's Gospel, we need to understand who he's talking to and why. Because the death of the Messiah is going to rock their world. The last thing they're expecting is for the Messiah and Lord to die. And in fact, we're going to see later, they conclude that it means their entire movement has been lost. They go back to fishing, gigs up, nice while it lasted. That mindset has to be corrected, and Jesus is planting seeds in these discourses so that later, as light bulbs come on, these guys begin to understand that the death was part of a plan. You can't have fruit unless the seed is buried. And these messages begin to pile up in their mind so that in a future day, they look back on the death with a fuller understanding. And so now we go forward from this, Jesus explaining the purpose of his suffering and death further. Verse 31, he says, now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Adam's sin brought the world under judgment, under God's judgment. And now the father is preparing to bring that judgment to bear Except he's not bringing it to bear on those who are guilty. He's about to bring it to bear on the one who is innocent. So that's what Jesus means when he says now judgment is upon the world. The judgment of God for sin is about to come upon the world, but in the sense of coming upon Christ alone. It's as if Jesus is literally the atlas of mythology, holding the world on his shoulders in this moment, bearing their sin as he goes to the cross. By his death, then, as he does this, as he bears the judgment of God... That leads to the second half of verse 31. By his death, he's going to cast out the enemy of the world. The enemy's power was established when he robbed a certain man, Adam, of fellowship with God. That power, the power of the enemy over the unbeliever, is taken away when the person is reconciled to God. And since our sin, our unrepentant sin, is the barrier that keeps us out of fellowship with God, we can say that the enemy's power lies in the way he brought men into sin. And therefore, 
Jesus' power over the enemy is evidenced in his ability to remove the penalty of sin so that we can be restored in fellowship to God. So if the enemy's power was to break us away from God, Christ's power over the enemy is to bring us back. And in that sense, the enemy's purpose in our life is being defeated. Ultimately, we know in the real sense of the word, Christ will defeat the enemy in person and put him into the lake of fire. But in this moment, notice he speaks in present tense in verse 31. Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. He's speaking of the spiritual work of Jesus on the cross that is soon to come. And that's why he says, now, if I get lifted up, obviously referring to the cross again, then it will serve to draw men to me. This, again, is further explanation in advance of why I have to die. And as the world comes to understand that Jesus has taken that penalty, as this idea of him being lifted up is not just speaking of the moment he dies. It's speaking to the way we testify to it. As we explain it to people, in their case, it's as if he's being lifted up for them in the moment. They come to understand the meaning of his death on the cross. In that moment, they flock to him in thankfulness. That's the core draw of the gospel. Telling the world they've been forgiven of sin and they have nothing to fear from God because all the wrath they deserve has already been taken upon Christ. That's the core of the gospel, which reminds us that if you're going to preach the gospel or offer it to someone or explain it to someone, if you're going to try to do it without discussing the reality of sin and the penalty that sin deserves, then you've gutted the power of the message. You've taken away its only attractive element. And the rest of it, Paul says the whole thing is foolishness when spoken to unbelievers. But if it's going to break through and make sense, it has to deal with the real problem of sin. The death of Christ is powerful and compelling only when you understand what it accomplished on your behalf. Otherwise, what's the purpose in talking about it? Because you can all applaud the one who sacrifices himself in the defense of another. You know, the soldier who throws himself on the grenade in wartime. We can all applaud that from a distance. But you're personally devoted to the person who dies on your behalf. That's a different conversation altogether. It's different when the life that was saved is your own. So our presentation of the gospel has to include the reality that all men are due hell. They're destined for eternal death because of sin in fire and torment for eternity. The reality of that can't be pushed aside so that when you can bring the solution that through another man's death in your place, that penalty can be set aside and that that was done for you because Christ so loved the world, then there's something of hope in the message. There's a reason to care about it. And Jesus says, if he is lifted up, and that lifted up means everything I just said, the message of a man dying in your place, if he can be lifted up, then that will draw men to himself. Now, all this talk of dying and burying and being lifted up, etc., has the crowd pondering. So they ask Jesus to explain what he's talking about. Verse 34, the crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. So as they hear he's going to die, they all ask him, hey, can you explain more what you're talking about? Because what we know about the Messiah from the law tells us that once he comes, he's here forever. Now that you're telling us that you have to be lifted up, which would seem that they understood he meant die, it would appear that they, they're getting the bigger picture. Now that you're telling us you've got to die, that's bothering us to no end. And it makes sense in a way, because it would seem to them that Jesus just violated scripture. 
It would seem as though he just declared something about himself that disqualifies him to be Messiah based on their erroneous understanding of what Scripture teaches concerning the Messiah. And then there's the whole term son of man. That apparently is confusing them as well, which it shouldn't because Daniel uses that term to describe the Messiah. So that little detail starts to suggest to us that whatever they know, they know very poorly. Ironically, they're much like woman in the garden. They have just a little knowledge to be dangerous. And so they they've heard a few things about the Messiah, but because they've got it wrong, they're incapable of identifying him when they're actually looking at him. The fact that they thought they knew what they knew and yet they were wrong was going to be their undoing, was going to lead them away because they didn't have the right understanding from Scripture of who the Messiah was. It's probably no coincidence that this is the last mention of a crowd following Jesus in any of the Gospels. In fact, you notice in verse 36, John says Jesus left them and hid. It would seem that this discussion of his death worried the crowd to the point that they were no longer interested in following him already the seed is beginning to be alone. Sensing their fickleness rather than answering their questions, he just calls them to believe in the gospel one more time. He calls them to walk in the light. And we're all very familiar with this metaphor by now, of course, to, to walk in the knowledge of the truth of Christ or to live in the light of spiritual truth. That's what this means. And the fact that then he goes on to say that the light is only among you a little longer. And so what that means, of course, is the call of the gospel is even more imperative. Time is running out. You know, we sit here today, faithful followers of a Jesus that we've never seen yet, that we won't see until we face him after this life. These people are standing a mere few feet from Jesus, from the Lord that we have yet to see. We're a privileged generation because I think we're at the very end, and that's special in its own right. But what about the generation that saw him in his first coming? These are moments in history that will never be repeated. These are unique moments. These people got to stand there and talk to him. What a privilege they had. And they shrugged their shoulders and left. So Jesus went away and hid from them. The time for convincing the crowds appears to be over and death is near. This generation was witness to God incarnate and they walked away unimpressed. How can anyone stand in the presence of the creator of the universe and not fall on their face? Why do the crowds hear Jesus and see him and not accept him? How do we explain that? How do we explain, for example, all the prior times in history when men had seen a vision of God in the form of the angel of the Lord or in the few cases like Isaiah, actually ushered into the throne room in some sense. And they always fall on their face in abject fear of God because that's the natural reaction of sinful flesh before a holy and righteous God. And they, they do this consistently. They're so afraid of the holiness of God and the majesties of heaven that even angels get them in a tizzy. And yet these people saw Jesus walk the earth and they, they don't care. They have no impression of him other than a, as a fraud. Why did they not accept him? Well, you can see John now bringing us back into a theme that he has brought us to several times already. This theme of why some believe and others turned away. And he's going to give us exactly the same answer again in the next passage. Verse 37. He says, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, when he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for this reason? They could not believe for Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I healed them. These things, Isaiah said, because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. So though Jesus performed those many signs, spoke those many words, though he was the creator standing in front of these people, nevertheless, most of the crowd did not believe in him. 
The fact that so many rejected Jesus, John says, is a result of God's sovereign will. The prophet Isaiah was called to write these provocative words concerning the Messiah and his arrival and how he would be received. And Isaiah asks in chapter 53 of his book, who believes the report that the Messiah has arrived for Israel? And then he doesn't answer because it's rhetorical. The answer is obvious. In fact, the answer becomes obvious through history. That is to say, no one virtually in Israel believes the Lord when he arrives for them. It's a strange result. The Lord is sent to his people and yet they don't receive him. And then Isaiah goes on or John goes on quoting Isaiah again to say the fact that Israel doesn't receive their Messiah wasn't chance, wasn't whim. It wasn't the result of individual desire or conclusion or intellect or any other consequence of the creation be it individual will mindset or groupthink or chance or whatever. John says the nation's rejection of the Messiah was an outcome produced by God, by the will of God. In verse 40, John quotes Isaiah 6, where the prophet says, God himself blinded the eyes of Israel. God himself hardened the heart of Israel. And he did these things so that they specifically would not receive their Messiah when he comes to them. For if they had done so, and this is the most compelling element of this little quote, for if God had not done these things, if he had not closed their eyes and hearts, look what he says at the end, then I would have been obligated to heal them. There's the most convincing element here. God is actually saying I had to do these things, otherwise they would have believed. And then, of course, in belief, I would have had to have honored my word and given them the salvation that comes with faith. And that wasn't the plan. So I stopped it. So let's not put a fine point on it. The Lord prevented Israel from believing in their Messiah. They heard, but they didn't understand. They saw, but they didn't believe, and it's all because of God. Isaiah knew that this was coming, John says, because he saw the Lord and knew his glory. What he's saying is, Isaiah wrote what he wrote because God told him to write it. Remember, even in Isaiah's own ministry, Isaiah was told that his ministry would be one in which nobody would believe what he would say even in his own day. Talk about a frustrating job. Of course, the question in our minds is, why? Why would he bring a Messiah to a people that are promised to have a Messiah, not to give them a chance to actually receive their Messiah? Not in that generation anyway. How can the Lord be just in rejecting his own people? Well, the answer begins with a promise spoken to Abraham. In the covenant God made to Abraham, he said in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, the promises God spoke to Abraham mentioned he would bless all nations, all families on the earth through what he was going to do in Abraham's life. So in that covenant, God committed himself to bringing a blessing to the whole of the world through the descendants of Abraham. And he's going to fulfill that promise, of course, through the Messiah, who is that descendant of Abraham that God is going to use to provide that blessing. And we see that today. The gospel is traveling around the world even now in keeping with God's word to Abraham. Every time you see the gospel move to another person somewhere in the Gentile world, you're watching the fulfillment of Genesis 12:3, God bringing the blessings to the world that he promised. So that means God, from the very beginning, had a plan to send the gospel beyond the Jewish people. But if the gospel is going to go to the world and not just to the Jewish nation, it needs time to get there. And it needs a manner in which it's going to get there. And, of course, it required the Messiah himself to be at the center of it, to have come, to have died, to have done the work of the Messiah for the sake of the world. All that has to be a part of the timing. 
So if the Messiah comes and dies as he's intended to in Israel, as God has promised he would, and if Israel had received him in that moment, well, then the Lord would have been obligated to bring them all that he had told them they would receive as a part of that promise. That's what God meant when he said to Isaiah. Otherwise, I would have healed them. In other words, otherwise, I would have had to do what I said I was going to do. So if God's going to bring the Messiah for the world, he can't have his people, Israel, accept him in that initial appearance at that very moment, for it would stop the movement of the gospel thereafter, because at that point, what follows according to God's promise in the covenant is the kingdom for Israel, the nation for whom it's intended. And at the entrance of the kingdom, at the moment the kingdom is set up, there is a separating of sheep and goats. Only those who are righteous will be allowed into the kingdom. All others will be set aside. If God allowed that timing to happen or to that event to, to happen at the time of Jesus's first coming, where would he have found the opportunity to bring the gospel to the rest of the world? The rest of the world would have had to have been condemned at that moment because that would have been the day that the kingdom was set up. You see, it's a catch 22. I've got to have a Messiah die to present the opportunity for a kingdom to Israel, but I can't let Israel have it right then because I need time for it to go elsewhere. The Lord needed a just way to reject his own people for a time in order to permit an opportunity to all Gentile nations to receive the Messiah as he promised. You see, he has to reject Israel, but he cannot do it capriciously. There has to be justice even in the rejection, for God cannot act in an unjust way. Therefore, the Lord entered into a second covenant with the people of Israel at the mountain, at Mount Sinai, with Moses. And in this second covenant, the one that follows the first one with Abraham, he delivers Israel a law. And the people are asked if they will agree to keep the law, and they do. And in that law, it promises them that if they can keep the law perfectly without one single failure for even one member of the entire nation, then under those terms, they'll receive the kingdom and the blessings that come in it. But conversely, if anyone in Israel breaks even one of the commandments of the law, even one time in all their history, then they will have to sit under all the judgment that God promised under that same covenant. All the curses of the law will have to come to pass as a result of that failure. And then the nation, hearing all these things, voluntarily agreed to that covenant. And then they promptly broke it. When they broke it, they gave God just cause to enact all the judgments spelled out in that covenant. Those judgments, by the way, include a long period in which the nation is to be set outside God's mercy, a period that Jesus calls the age of the Gentiles, described in Daniel. And it is during this age, right in the middle, more or less, of this age, that the Messiah appears to Israel. So while they are still serving a sentence of judgment because of an earlier covenant, the Lord brings the Messiah. And it's because of the earlier judgment of the old covenant still being carried out that allows God to be just in saying to the nation, when I send the Messiah, you will not receive it. I will darken your eyes and I will harden your hearts and you will not receive him. Instead, he will go to a people who are not his people in fulfillment to what he said he would do to Abraham. So God orchestrated the Messiah's appearance to Israel to fall within this period of judgment for their sins under the old covenant so that he could be just in rejecting them. Simultaneously, he was at work keeping his word under the first covenant of Abraham in allowing the gospel a chance to reach all the Gentile nations. So the people of Israel were set aside by the Lord for a time so that they wouldn't receive the gospel when it was offered. But because Israel rejected it, you and I have had the opportunity to accept it. As Paul says, quoting Hosea and Isaiah in Romans, Romans 9.25, and he says also to Hosea, I will call those who were not my people 
my people and her who were not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Paul goes on to say, if God has broken off the natural branches so as to graft in the unnatural for a time, well, then he can always return to grafting back in the natural again. A reminder that what he has begun with Israel is not done yet. The plan of God explains why the nation would be blinded to their own Messiah. But not all is lost for Israel. For God has promised salvation to the Gentiles, but he has also promised the kingdom to Israel. So one day when the Lord returns, he comes in his second coming to bless Israel. As Paul says in Romans 11, verses 7 through 11, he says, What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Now, the chosen refers to those in Israel that God permitted to believe. The people like the apostles, men like Paul, Barnabas, Jews who were allowed to believe as a minority, as a remnant within the nation. God in control of that minority of who believes and who doesn't. And in the decision to harden the majority, he still allowed some. Paul goes on, he says, what Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Notice it's a retribution for their failure under the law. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, Paul adds, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Paul ends by saying, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial Hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So God says that his plan to bring the gospel to the Gentiles is a plan of a certain period of time to a certain number of Gentiles. And when that plan is completed or fulfilled, when the number is complete, whatever that number is, then it will be time to return to Israel and to bring the gospel to them as he has promised. And at the second coming of Christ, the Lord will fulfill his promises to Israel. That's the moment in which all the judgments of the law are brought to an end. That period of recompense is over. And it will be the moment when all Israel, all who are Israel on that day, will come to know Jesus as their Messiah and re receive him as a nation in contrast to what they did during the first coming. And as the Lord said through Isaiah, if he hadn't hardened their hearts the first time, then they would have received him that same way as they're going to in that second time, but it's still in the future. That if he had not acted, we would have seen that kingdom arrive way too early. All these details are explained in much greater detail in the Revelation study online. If you're interested, that's where I would send you. Nevertheless, John, in just this brief little passage I've expounded on, John is referring to this grand plan of God to explain what I think is an otherwise unexplainable set of circumstances that we're trying to make sense of here in the text. I mean, if you don't understand why God would harden his own people's hearts, then you're left with one of two conclusions. You're either perplexed with no answer or you begin to explain away the concept of God's sovereignty. You begin to tell yourself that these words don't mean what they just sounded like. 
It can't mean what I just thought I heard. God can't actually be the one who hardens your heart. It must have been God doing that because you did something first or because he knew you were going to anyway. We talk our way around the obvious thing that's being spoken to us because the sense of it is eluding us. Why? Because we don't understand the bigger problem that God is working on, the bigger plan, that he has to be just, yet he has to fulfill his word. And the way he set up his promises would almost seem to lead him into contradictory paths. How can he give the, the Israelites what they were offered and give the Gentiles what they were offered when one is going to exclude the other? He had to create a span of time in which he could do that through a just cause. That's the purpose of the old covenant. That's why Paul says that a covenant given later does not invalidate the promises given to Abraham. Its purpose was not to do that or even to supplement. Its purpose was to create an opportunity for the Gentiles by giving Israel a standard they could not meet. And yet they agreed to meet. And so now he can be just in holding them accountable. So John raises this to help explain the circumstance. The fact that many rejected Jesus doesn't mean, of course, that no one accepted him. On the contrary, God's plan to bypass Israel in this moment doesn't mean he's turning his back on the nation as a whole. And Paul has already said that it is not to be to their end. Therefore, God continues to maintain a remnant of believers within Israel throughout history, at all times in history. Even going back to Romans 11, just briefly, Paul says in verses four and five, what is the divine response? I have kept for myself 7000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And in the same way, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Paul wrote those words. He acknowledged there's still some believing Jews according to God's choice. Because he's never going to completely let that nation become extinguished in terms of believers. And look in verse 42, John explains that a remnant was present even in Jesus' day. Verse 42 through 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. John says many of Israel were believing in him, even among the rulers of Israel. So it's many generic and it included leaders within Israel. And yet you're not going to see these many at the cross. You're not going to see these many at the trial. And we don't see any of the leaders stepping forward for the most part. I think the only exception would be Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea gives them the tomb. So these are the only two leaders that we know of that have ever shown themselves to be in Jesus's camp. John says there were others, but they were too afraid that when they aligned themselves to Jesus, they put themselves in the crosshairs with him and whatever things come his way will come their way. So to put it simply, peer pressure, the fear of disapproval of the authorities, which is a sober reminder that even among believers, the pressure to conceal our allegiance to Christ can be quite severe, can it? it can be quite great. Even in the very presence of the Messiah, these followers love the approval of the world more than they love the approval of him. When you silence your confession, you are forfeiting the approval of God. When you pass on the opportunity to be aligned with him, you are forfeiting God's approval of you. Jesus himself puts those in contrast. You're either seeking the approval of the world or you're seeking the approval of God. So when the world does not want to know you're Christian and you agree with their desires, you have failed to seek God's approval. The point here is that in the very case that some believe and we're not willing to even make it known is to simply say, even in this darkest moment when no one was with Jesus, it doesn't mean there were no believers. It just means there was no one willing to seek his approval over the people's approval. Again, that for me, that's a sobering thing to remember. Sometimes we, we forget how important it is that we do the very thing we're on earth to do. 
which is to be a witness. If it comes down to living your whole life here and not being a witness, what was the point of your life after you became a believer? That's really the only reason you're still here. Otherwise, we might as well get home, right? Might as well just finish this up and get back to Jesus. But you're here for a reason. So what's about to follow in this gospel is going to put everyone to the test in this way. Do they love the approval of God or do they love the approval of men? Peter is going to see this. All the disciples are going to see it. Clearly, Jesus is going to. But the question on everyone's mind is, do they fear men or fear God? Do they want approval from men or approval from God? Are they willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps? Their initial answer is going to be no. And I think in what is one of the great ironies of the, of the Bible, of the Gospels and, and of Acts, all these men who couldn't stand to be around at Jesus' own death were going to suffer the very same kind of death in many ways, or worse, as they ended their lives. That you can't run from God and from your witness. Their martyrdom was not punishment. Their martyrdom was the second chance to do the right thing. And God gave them that chance, which was a glory to them. Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminders of being witnesses and not seeking the approval of men over you. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of this wonderful plan of salvation that we have become a part of by your grace always putting your sovereignty at the forefront of our understanding, Father, so that we never think ourselves too important in this process. And always understanding that your love triumphs, even in moments when it would appear as though you have done things that we don't understand from this perspective of love. And yet, Father, it's only because we don't have eyes for eternity we can't see what you can see and understand it from your point of view. But when we, when we read your word and we understand it, Lord, it makes all these things clear. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of that knowledge. And Lord, let us lead others to understand these things when we have opportunity, for we know it transforms us as we know it better. Bring us back next week, if it be your will, continuing in this study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.